Bibi Netanyahu has debunked President Biden's claim that Israel agreed to have a four-hour pause every day in the fighting. I will play you the clip of Netanyahu. You can decide for yourself. This is not getting a lot of attention, but it's a bombshell. That's coming up. We'll get a little bit into the Republican debate. And this past Tuesday was Election Day. We'll talk about that a little bit as Republicans continue to lose one election after the next. We've got a government shutdown looming as the media keeps liking to like to remind us and slam down our throats. We got six days from the next government shutdown if they don't pass a spending package. So this is going to be the first big test by Speaker Mike Johnson. The city of San Francisco is clearing out the homeless people. You can't make this stuff up. President Xi of China is coming to San Francisco. We've got to clean this place up. This place is a disaster. It's it's, it's, it's a war zone. So this is an L.A. Times headline. Literally, quote, they are cleaning out the homeless in France, in San Francisco. This is for the upcoming Apex summit. So it turns out that liberals know how to clean up a city if they need to badly enough. Okay, if you got a bunch of foreign diplomats, including President Xi of China, and of course, we know the leftists, they worship President Xi because Trump despises him so much. So attention, they can they know how they figured out how to clear out the homeless. It's not something they're not able to do. It's something they don't want to do. Attention, right aid, attention, target. You can reopen in San Francisco next week because you don't have to worry about shoplifting. I mean, they literally it's unbelievable. They wouldn't want President G to see the homeless people literally littering the streets, the syringes, the drugs, the alcohol, the violence. It's a cesspool. So suddenly the woke mayor of San Francisco is worried about the city's image after literally driving his city into a total wasteland. It's literally more pleasant to live in Afghanistan than it is to live in San Francisco. By the way, Biden's going to be meeting with Xi at this summit. So how would you I mean, how cringeworthy is this meeting Like, how does President Xi stop himself from snickering? You got the spy balloons literally flying through the air. Biden says, don't worry, we're going to shoot it down as soon as it gets across the country and over the ocean because we wouldn't want to endanger civilians. They're hacking China, hacks into the email of the Commerce Secretary. And then she, but don't worry, she confronted them. She said, you can't hack into my email. I'm a government, U.S. government cabinet member. And they said, sorry, it was a mistake. They acknowledged, literally talk about mocking us, talk about just the total, total taunting. They they said, yes, we, we admit that we may have hacked into the email account of the commerce secretary, but it was a mistake. We, we did it. It was inadvertent because that happens all the time. I just, I'm just typing random keys on my computer and I accidentally hack in to a, to, to, to a very, very uh, highly protected, heavily protected uh, email account of, uh, of a U.S. government agency. It's just unbelievable. So, and then President Xi is going to meet with with Biden and like Biden's supposed to be tough on him. It's just I mean, it's it's really, really sad. If like if you ever are traveling in a foreign country and somebody asks you what country you're from, don't tell them you're from the United States because it'll be too embarrassing. Tell them you're from Kenya. Tell them you're from Bangladesh. All right. Uh, the U.S. has struck another storage facility. Speaking of embarrassing, the U.S. has retaliated once again. Iran has struck U.S. military bases 40 times. There have been 40 strikes here since October 7th. And they have, as we've told you, they've injured like over 25 U.S. military personnel with these strikes. So what have we done? We're retaliating. Who are we retaliating against? Syria. But one second, it was Iran. Well, Iran did it through a proxy, so we're going to retaliate by hitting a proxy. Well, all right. How many Syrian uh, troops did you kill? No, we actually didn't uh, hurt any troops. We actually didn't hurt any personnel, any human beings, because once again, it was a storage facility. So it was empty. It was done in the middle of the night. 
And it's just incredible how they're so terrified. Biden uh, is literally so terrified. I guess we'll get to this a little bit later. But essentially what Biden is doing here is is he's reaffirming to Iran. Iran is striking. They are striking American U.S. service members on American military bases. That's an act of war. Okay, so how does Biden respond? He's a token response against a weapons facility and now a storage facility that belongs to a proxy of Iran. Iran's not going to feel this one bit. It is a token response. They are just doing it, going through the motions because we've got to do something. We have to respond. It can't go without any kind of response. So let's do a response that encourages Iran to do it again. Wink, wink. We're telling Iran, hey, you know what? You attack us with a proxy. Don't worry. We're going to do something in response that's going to be so pitifully weak that all we're doing is reaffirming to you, you have nothing to worry about, so keep doing it. Do it even more, which is exactly what's happening. So that's what that that that's the message that Biden is sending. It's, it would actually be better to not retaliate and keep Iran on their toes. And I have to say, I've got a newfound respect for, uh, uh, you know, when I say respect, it, it, I, I got to put that into context, but People like Senator John Fetterman. I've got to give credit to people like Senator John Fetterman. I never thought I would say this. i got to give credit to Hillary Clinton. And by the way, I'm going to play you in a moment a clip of Alan Dershowitz. i got the clip of Bibi, and i got a clip of Alan Dershowitz. I mean, slamming Obama like you've never seen. Just, just decimating Barack Obama. Talking about his deep hatred for Israel and how uh, Dershowitz basically regrets ever being Obama's friend. Amazing it took Dershowitz this many years to wake up, but I do have to give credit to Dershowitz. We've given credit to Dershowitz before because Dershowitz, he's very, very honest and, and, and staunch in his defense of President Trump. And look, Dershowitz is very, very liberal when it comes to domestic issues, but he's been one of the most, one of the biggest supporters of Israel, one of the most outspoken supporters of Israel, not now, just, not just now, but for the last 40 years, 35, 40 years. So, you know, I got, and, and that's not very popular amongst them, like the Martha's Vineyard crowd, the Harvard crowd that Dershowitz hangs out with. And now, of course, he's been totally sidelined. I mean, he's been banished. He's literally been banished, not just because of his support of Israel, but also his support of Trump. So Hillary Clinton, she's been very, very tough against Hamas. She's been out there. She appears on mainstream, you know, media television shows, basically slamming, trashing Hamas and telling the truth and, and, and being very, very supportive in her defense of Israel. And John Fetterman, Senator John Fetterman. Now, I do not agree with Senator John Fetterman about anything. And, you know, and I've been very negative about him in the past. This man is is incredibly, incredibly his deep, emotional, passionate support for Israel is mind-boggling. I've almost you almost never seen I've never seen anything like it, and it's not popular. Okay, he is getting lambasted. He's getting vilified by his own constituents. He's get, the Democrats, his own voters, his own former supporters are furious and outraged at him. They want him to call for a ceasefire. They feel like he somehow is supporting genocide. They're literally accusing him of being a supporter of genocide. So this is not pleasant for John Fetterman, but he he hung up posters of the hostages. outside of his office in the Capitol, literally outside of his Senate office, he has posters, every single one. He hung up a a poster for every single hostage. And he says he's going to, you know, keep it there as long as it takes. Hopefully it should be very quick that he doesn't have to have it there anymore. And then the other day he walked outside. There were protesters who were yelling at him about his support of Israel. He came, he walked outside of the Capitol and these protesters, they're getting arrested because they're being very disruptive and disturbing and threatening. And, uh, what did he do? He's waving an Israeli flag. There's a video. He's waving an Israeli flag, basically taunting these people as they're getting arrested. These pro Hamas protesters, pro ceasefire protesters. So you got to give a lot of credit and, and people like Jake Tapper on CNN. And look, what it tells me is 
that they have a moral compass. What it tells me is that when it comes to doing the right thing, they have principle, even when it's not popular. People like Hillary John Fetterman, look, I disagree with them. Not just do I disagree with them. I think that in a lot of ways, they have very, very twisted views on a lot of things. But they have a moral compass. In other words, uh, they're very severely misguided on most issues. But when it comes to something this black and white, they're willing to take a stand. And we've got to give credit and and respect that and show our gratitude and appreciation because we need all the friends we can get here, as opposed to like so many liberals, so many Democrats who are basically encouraging terrorists to use human shields. The human shield uh, strategy, it, it's very, very scary how much it's working because the, the the pressure right now is mounting on Israel, which we will get to shortly. All right, so on that note, let's get back to Bibi over here. So Bibi Netanyahu, on, on Thursday, the Biden administration announced that Israel has agreed, we've pressured them for a pause, and they're going to do a pause, a humanitarian pause, like we've been telling them they have to do. And it seemed very bizarre to me. I'm scratching my head. Really, Israel just agreed? And Israel didn't announce anything about this, but you got the only source on this is the White House, but of course the media is running with this and and, and, and talking like this is a done deal, and that every single day there's going to be a four-hour pause in the fighting in Gaza. What? That doesn't sound right. All that sounds to me like is it gives Hamas a chance to regroup, and it gives Hamas a chance to basically get stronger, and it's exactly playing into their hands, and it's going to prolong the uh, fighting and, and prolong the crisis, the humanitarian crisis, even more if you have a four-hour pause. So I'm thinking, does that really make any sense? Well, it turns out, and you can decide for yourself here, but Brett Baer on Thursday night spoke to Bibi Netanyahu and he asked him literally about this exact thing. And as far as I'm concerned, Bibi completely contradicted the Biden narrative here and said, no, there is not going to be any pause with one little caveat, as I'll explain. Listen to this clip. Specifically, the administration talked about some kind of four hour pause numerous times. Is that true that there's going to be some stoppage? No, the, the fighting continues against the Hamas enemy, the Hamas terrorists. But in specific locations for a given period of a few hours here, a few hours there, we want to facilitate a safe passage of civilians away from the zone of fighting. And we're doing that. Uh, and uh, in fact, we did one uh, today. We did one yesterday. And I assume we'll do one tomorrow because our goal isn't to fight the Palestinian civilians. It's to fight the Hamas terrorists. And we make a distinction between the two. They don't. And then Brett Bear went on to other things. You did not follow up, did not pursue at all, which is not a great job, in my opinion, on on Brett Bear's part. But Netanyahu said it very clearly there. He said, and it's not clear exactly. Look, who knows all the logistics and everything going on? You really, it's very hard to get a picture of what's going on there on the ground in Gaza, of course, because it's such a messy situation and so disorganized because of Hamas wants it that way. But what Netanyahu very clearly said is he said, no, we're not going to do a pause on the fighting. The fighting against Hamas, that continues nonstop. And he said specific locations, and he mentioned this a few times in the interview, the corridors. He's saying we have corridors, which are escape corridors, which essentially they try to facilitate, as he said, uh, civilians being able to escape. So they have these areas where they pause the fighting, but it's not a pause for the sake of, it, it almost sounds like it benefits Israel because it's like, let's pause and get the civilians out of there, and that'll make it easier to tar- target Hamas. Now, again, who knows what any of this stuff means? Because, well, you know, if there are locations that are not, do not have Hamas, why are they ever fighting in those locations? Like, we're going to pause fighting in those locations, but only fighting the other locations. So, why would you ever fight in the locations which are civilian locations? Obviously, because they believe that Hamas could be anywhere because Hamas embeds with civilians. So, well, then, why are you pausing there? Because those are places, I'm guessing, that are more likely to be, you know, to have civilians and to allow civilians to escape. 
and are less likely to actually have Hamas. I guess they're not in your hospitals because we know that Hamas basically ha- hospitals and kindergartens and, and, and schools. That's where Hamas literally keeps their headquarters. No exaggeration in, in the basements underneath these hospitals, which is causing a whole disaster from a PR standpoint because Israel's getting a lot of pressure because Israel has to go into these hospitals in order to take out Hamas. And that's, of course, the whole human shield strategy. And it's crazy that it's working. You know, it's like, look at all these civilians. They're talking about newborns that can't get medicine and can't get basic supplies. And they're claiming Hamas Ministry of Health, which is ridiculous. Don't ever, ever believe a word that they say. It's meaningless what they say. But they're claiming, and the media is picking up on this, that babies are dying and children are dying in hospitals. And, well, very simple. If if that is true, and I don't believe that it's true just because they say that, then and let Hamas just release the hostages, and believe me, Israel will be glad to stop bombing the hospitals, I would think. I mean, you, you know, look, within reason, obviously, if the, if the deal made sense. But blame Hamas. The point is, don't blame Israel. So here's what's happening with Bibi is uh, Biden announces the four-hour pause. And Bibi even said, he said, we, I presume we're going to do it tomorrow also. He wasn't committing to anything, but, his, but the point is very simple, okay? Biden's been pressuring Israel for a pause. Biden's under enormous pressure from within his own party that, that, that uh, they say that he's promoting genocide and that he needs to pressure Israel to do a ceasefire. And Israel basically wink, wink is saying to Biden, all right, you want a humanitarian pause? We'll give you a pause. We'll give you a four hour pause in certain areas. And then Biden goes and announces the White House goes and makes this big announcement. Oh, you see, Israel, we got them to agree they're doing a four hour pause every day, making it sound like there's a four hour pause in the fighting. And Netanyahu literally is right there on Fox and nobody else is talking about this, saying, no, 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 no. We're not pausing anything when it comes to Hamas. The only pause is in certain specific locations, strategic locations that we can get the civilians out of there, whatever exactly that means. So there's one of two options over here, either. Biden is there's like a wink wink agreement between Biden and Netanyahu and Biden's telling Bibi, listen, I have a problem over here. You know, my 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 party is pressuring me to pressure you to do a pause. So I need a pause. And Netanyahu said, okay, no problem. We'll do a pause in certain areas. We're doing it for our own benefit because it really this pause is not going to affect us because it doesn't affect our fighting with Hamas. But this way, Biden and America can save face. The White House can save face and say, all right, listen, we pressured it. So we got a pause out of this or. The other option here is that Biden really is not happy with it. You know, there's one option, isn't it? Biden's happy with Netanyahu, and it's like I just need something to be able to throw a bone uh, to the, to, you know, to the Democrat establishment and say I got Israel to do a pause, and he knows there's no pause. Or Bibi might be saying to Biden, "Listen, I don't have a pause for you. I'm sorry. Like we got to fight Hamas here. Like they're a terrorist, or they're 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 dangerous. Like this is this is survival." And Biden's coming back and saying, oh, yeah, Bibi agreed to a pause. And Bibi doesn't want to outright contradict Biden. So he's saying, yeah, listen, we're pausing in certain areas. And, you know, for the sake of the media, there are going to be certain areas where I guess they do stop fighting here and there. That's what Bibi's saying. So one or the other. But the point is, we need to decipher these things. What's really going on behind the scenes is Israel has no interest whatsoever. Now, the question is, if Biden at some point is going to basically force Israel and say, you're not getting any money unless you agree to do it our way. That would be scary. But short of that, Bibi basically saying to Biden, listen, we're doing this our way and I don't care if you like it or not. And Biden is basically then figuring out a way to somehow make it seem as though he's influencing Israel, even though he's not. That's very, very clear to me. But the pressure, like I said, is surging by the minute. Now you have Blinken saying there have been too many civilian casualties. You have these false numbers, like I said, these fake inflated numbers that uh, the Hamas ministry.
Ministry of Health, because that's what they are, announces a certain number of civilian casualties, very, very high number. And even Biden said that number is meaningless because you cannot take those statistics are made up. They're literally fabricated. But it's 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 creating enormous, enormous pressure. The media, so many now you have Macron lecturing Israel in France is so many, so many people around the world now are buying into the the bogus Hamas narrative about the civilian casualties, which are Hamas's fault. Like I said, Biden bombed these facilities in um, Syria with no humans in sight. So, like I said, they're just literally reaffirming to Iran that you can fight us as long as you keep using proxies, then we're going to keep doing virtually nothing in response. So you can just keep doing this more and more. And, and at which point does Biden really retaliate? I don't know. I have zero faith in that at all, as you can imagine. All right, so let me play this clip now, Alan Dershowitz. Now, what's annoying about this clip, I looked around, I couldn't find another one. Yeah, this is uh, Dershowitz, like I said, talking about Obama and basically regretting that he ever bought bought into he 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 thinks that he was duped by Obama into believing that Obama actually supported Israel. I have no idea why Dershowitz ever believed that. But the problem with this clip is that there's a a very strong music in the background and it's like kind of annoying, but I couldn't find one without it. So you're just going to have to bear with it because this is very important. By the way, what I said about Obama was actually very, very generous to Obama compared to Dershowitz is way, way tougher on Obama. He's right. I'm not disagreeing with him. But I was much, I was much, I was not nearly this strong about Obama as Dershowitz. Listen to this clip. No, you can't make those kinds of comparisons, Barack Obama. And I have to tell you, what you did is just despicable. It's beneath contempt. And um, and whatever respect I had for you, I have absolutely lost. Fortunately, so have many other Americans. Uh, lost respect for you. And I'm hoping that you have no influence on the current administration, future Democratic administrations, and that your lack of morality ends up in the, in the dustbin of history where, where it belongs. And so I'm ashamed that I was your friend. I'm ashamed that I invited you to my birthday party. I'm ashamed that I accepted your invitation to the Oval Office. And I'm ashamed that I allowed you to fool me into thinking that you actually uh, supported Israel. You do not. Nobody who has any love for Israel in their heart would ever make the kind of obscene, obnoxious comparison you made between murder, kidnapping, burning of, of, of civilians and, and a disputed occupation that could have ended over and over again if the Palestinians had only uh, accepted the deals offered by President Clinton and by others in the American administration, not by you. You didn't do anything to help the peace process, but Clinton did and, and Trump did and, and others did, but not you. Um, all you did was condemn it. Don't count on me and my support. Um, uh, you have been an enemy of justice, an enemy to Israel, an enemy to the Jewish people, and an enemy to decency. I'm embarrassed that I ever thought it as highly as you as I obviously did. I was fooled by you. I'll never be fooled again. Now, a few things there. Number one, <clears throat> he does you know, literally talk about, he calls Obama an enemy of the Jewish people, and he talks incredibly, incredibly strongly, negatively about Obama, just to ba- basically as harsh terms as you could ever imagine, scathing, scathing words there by somebody who was a big fan of Obama, and they have the whole Harvard connection and everything else. But now, and Dershowitz, he even calls him out, and he says that Trump did more to advance the peace process. Trump at least tried to create a peace process. Trump actually proposed a two-state solution, which Obama never did, and actually was busy negotiating on one. Get zero credit for that, of course. And uh, Clinton did. Obama did not. So that's number one. Number two, what I'm slightly disappointed about is that you never hear Dershowitz go back and say, man, I was so dumb. I mean, how could I have fallen for that? What was I thinking? Because what bothers me is what about all of us who were screaming for years and saying, Obama's an enemy of Israel. And look, Obama, he totally, totally marginalized. He treated Bibi Netanyahu like dirty, treated him like the janitor, barely, you know, they had to sneak him into the back door of the White House. And he gave Bibi no respect. He pressured Israel again and again on the settlement building and everything else. 
Uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, Obama was totally egregious, totally disgraceful from day one. And Dershowitz sat there and said, oh, Obama loves loves Israel. And I got I got fooled. I can't believe Obama. And he's blaming Obama. Obama fooled me. You fooled yourself and you duped yourself. And Dershowitz should right now be remorseful. It's like the, it's like the Republicans who are like pro-vaccine and then woke up and they said, oh, I, actually, the government's totally deceiving us. I didn't realize this. This, this. this COVID vaccine, this is not so simple. This might actually be risky for health. Why should healthy people take the COVID vaccine? They say, well, what were you thinking? Oh, well, the the government told me it was okay, so I trusted it. What? Really? Really? So, like, it, it's very, very weak and disappointing that Dershowitz can't go to the next step here and say, I was the one who was fooled. He does say, like, kind of, he he tiptoes around it. Uh, well, you know, I was fooled, and I feel foolish, and whatever. I feel bad that I'm, bar- I'm I invited him to my birthday party and whatever he's saying there. But he never goes back and says, you know what? Like, this was so obvious to certain people, and there were certain people who were saying this from day one, and it took me here how many years since 2008 to wake up and realize that Obama that Obama's actually an enemy of Israel and an enemy of the Jewish people. But look, better late than never, and at least he's saying it now, even if, like I said, he's not expressing the remorse that he, you know, he really never, ever should have bought into it, and it's inexcusable that somebody like Dershowitz did. I also want to just quickly mention, you know, when Hillary, we said Hillary before, you know, she's been slamming not just Hamas, but the Palestinians, Yasser Arafat, you know, she lived it. This is personal for Bill and Hillary Clinton. Bill Clinton literally sat there, Dershowitz alluded to this, in 2000, they got Israel to agree to give up half of Jerusalem. I mean, they what they would have agreed to had had uh, had the Ayatollah, uh, the Ayatollah had uh, Yasser Arafat signed on the dotted line and and agreed to the proposal from Israel that was brokered by Bill Clinton. Literally half of Jerusalem right now would be in the hands of the Palestinians. It, 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 it's, it's terrifying when you think about it. They were willing to give away everything, make these massive concessions. And, and Israel said yes. Arafat was the one who said no. Bill Clinton was furious, furious, almost publicly furious at Arafat. How could you do this? I gave you everything you wanted. And Arafat right then and there showed you. He's not interested in peace. He's not interested in the two-state solution. He's interested only in one thing and wiping Israel off the map because he was getting right there a gift beyond anything anybody ever could have imagined, and he turned it down. Why on earth would you turn that down? This is exactly what you've been for years and years, for decades, with all the bus bombs and everything else. Arafat, his one mission was, I want Jerusalem to be divided in two. He got exactly his wish. Bill Clinton said to him, this is what you've been telling us you want all these years, and Arafat right there conceded and admitted, this is not what I want. I want Israel, you know, if, if you don't wipe Israel off the map, then I'm never going to agree. That would have been the end of Arafat. What Arafat wants is an excuse to call Israel occupiers. Arafat wants to keep, wanted to keep bombing. Arafat wanted to stay in power by being the victim and by being the martyr and by having an excuse, what he calls a pretext and an excuse, obviously it's not an excuse, to bomb and bomb and bomb and to attack and, to, and commit terror attacks. The minute he signs and agrees to this agreement anymore, he, 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 he no longer has a pretext. He actually has been getting what he claims that he wanted. Of course he never wanted that. So that was exposed. So Bill Clinton and, and Hillary despise the Palestinians because they know that the Palestinians, it's all about hatred of Israel. It's all about destruction of Israel. It has nothing to do with occupation and nothing to do with getting a divided Jerusalem or a two-state solution or any of that. All that stuff is, is pure garbage. All right. Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has announced that he's not running for the Senate in 2024. But what's interesting is that if you, you know, if you know about Joe Manchin, essentially, he's pretty right wing. It's overrated. He's not exactly conservative. They like to call him that, you know, because they, 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 it benefits them, the left, to say, oh, Joe Manchin, he's really on the Republican side. He's not. But he's very, very moderate, very moderate Democrat. And he's in a very, very red state that loves Trump. So as it is, he would have a tough time winning in 2024. That's the backdrop over here. 
But uh, but Joe Manchin, let's call him a centrist candidate. So a lot of people believe that he could kind of unite. There's a lot of division, right? And he could be a uniter and a unifier. Anyway, so so Manchin essentially said, I'm not running in 2024 for the Senate in West Virginia, but he's forming some sort of exploratory committee. And essentially, he is hinting at the fact that he may be a third party candidate. He may want to run for president in 2024, which would be very, very interesting in terms of the landscape. Now, this would benefit if, let's say, Manchin, and it's a long shot, but if Manchin would run as a third-party candidate, they're talking Mitt Romney is talking about running as a third-party candidate. We know we have RFK running as a possible third-party candidate, I believe. So any third-party candidate, to me, benefits Trump. I'm going to explain why in a moment. There would be a huge, huge benefit to the Republicans. But Manchin, essentially, there might be some plan here where if Biden drops out, there's so much pressure on Biden to drop out. All you keep hearing about again and again on from CNN and MSNBC is, oh, the polls for Biden are looking horrible. They never did this to Obama. Obama also had bad polling numbers at this point in his presidency. And of course, he ended up winning by a landslide in 2012. But uh, they never did this and talked about how uh, Obama's poll numbers are just Terrible, terrible, and this is a disaster, and we've got to do something about that. And now with Biden, that's all they're doing is alarmist and talking about how Biden's poll numbers are so dreadful, and Biden has all these, you know, weaknesses, and and they keep focusing on his age. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to push him out. The 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 media and the Democrats, the left, they're desperate to get anybody in there besides Biden, as I keep explaining. So Manchin may be kind of secretly thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to explore, I'm going to, you know, put my, you know, kind of get my feet wet as a candidate. And then if Biden drops out and they need a replacement candidate, then I'll be the person, I'll be the obvious choice, which he actually would. He would not be a bad choice from the Democrats perspective. But, uh, you know, that could be part of the strategy over here. But either way, let me explain why the third party candidate almost always hurts the incumbent and helps the challenger. So that happened with Ross Perot, of course who actually destroyed Bush's chances against Clinton. Ralph Nader actually hurt Al Gore back in 2000. And even RFK, you know, even though some people say, oh, RFK supporters, that'll take away support from Trump because they're anti-vax and whatever. I'm not worried. I don't think RFK is taking too many supporters away from Trump. But think about this. Think about why Manchin or even Mitt Romney, who's a Republican, okay, even he, he would take away a lot more voters from Biden than he would from Trump. Let me explain why. Because right now, 40% of the country loves Trump. That's never going to change. 40% of the Trump loyalists, they they are obsessed with Trump. They'll follow him into a minefield. They'll jump off a cliff with Trump, okay? 60% of the country, let's say, cannot stand him. I don't think so. I think the number's inflated. But let's just pretend that 60% of the country, and even some Republicans, do not like Trump, dislike Trump, would never vote for Trump. So now, but on the other side, you have 100% of the country who cannot stand Biden. Biden right now, literally 95% of the country, there's always going to be a few percent of people who are just so delusional that any Democrat, I mean, it could be Kim Jong-un and they'd support a Democrat. You have that on the Republican side too, by the way. And I'm not one of those people, but either way, yeah. so you have 97% of the country cannot stand Biden, okay? Uh, 60% cannot stand Trump. Let's go with those numbers, right? But the ones who uh, who don't like Biden, which is everybody, they're stuck with him. The reason they would choose Biden is not because they want Biden. Nobody wants Biden. Even the first time around, nobody wanted Biden. Now, certainly nobody wants Biden. But they have no choice because they they don't want Trump or they don't want a Republican, let's say. So that's your landscape there. So now th- those Biden supporters, they're desperate for an alternative. They are desperate for a, uh, for an alternative. The, the, yeah, again, there's a few people. For the most part, the people who like Trump like Trump. And the people who don't like Trump, some of them will vote for Trump. Most of them won't. But the people who don't like Biden is everybody. And they want an alternative. So all you need to do, you take 8 or 10% or even 5 or 6% of 
the Biden voters away from Biden, they're the ones jumping to Manchin. They're the ones jumping to Mitt Romney. They're the ones jumping to RFK. The people who like Trump like Trump. The people who don't like Trump are anyway not voting for Trump. It's not It's not like, well, they're not going to vote for Trump. They're going to vote for, you know, for they're going to whatever. It's not like they're going to vote for Trump and now they're going to take away and now they're going to go and vote for Manchin or even Mitt Romney. It doesn't work that way for the most part. You're going to have a few. But for the most part, the people like Trump like and the people who don't already don't. And they're just going to go for whoever else there is. But if but 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 Manchin would be a great option for Biden supporters to say, oh, listen, I don't like Biden, but Manchin, he's and I don't don't like Trump either. But Manchin's a great alternative. That's what I think, if that makes sense. But listen, the whole election right now is extremely hard to predict in general. I mean, you may have like the situation right now. We don't know Biden. Obviously, his age is a huge factor. Who knows what his health is even going to be in a year? And who knows if he's even going to be in the race? And if he's not, who's going to take over? And then you have Trump. Trump may be, and Trump is certainly going to win the primaries. There's no question about that at this point. But Trump may actually be in jail or maybe under house arrest in Mar-a-Lago. I know it sounds crazy, but we have to recognize that at least it's a possibility. And that's unprecedented. I mean, so, and then he might win. He might win from jail in theory. So that's what just makes all this stuff. There's so many question marks so hard to predict. All right. So let's talk about the government shutdown for a minute. And I don't know. Last time I knew, I said there's going to be no government shutdown. And now I'll admit, I don't know. I'm not even going to try to predict this. And the reason is very simple, because we don't know who, you know, wh- whether Mike Johnson has the courage. We don't know if Mike Johnson is going to be able to stand his ground and say, I'm shutting down this government. And he's a brand new rookie speaker of the House. So it would be very risky for him because this is like his first big move is is shutting down the government. And he's going to be under such enormous pressure. They're going to vilify him. I mean, the media, they are going to make mincemeat out of him if he shuts down the government. Now, he should do it anyway, if need be, you know, if, if, if the alternative is a bad spending package. But just to show you, so, so we don't know. And in, in other words, Kevin McCarthy, I knew, I knew that he was an establishment person. I knew Kevin McCarthy would never, ever allow the government to shut down on his watch because that's just not his, his approach. You know, he's a member of the swamp. He's a member of the establishment. But Mike Johnson is like more of an outsider. So we don't really know if he'd be willing to go through with something that a lot of, uh, members of the swamp establishment would consider unthinkable. Now, MSNBC, just so you see how the media approaches this, first of all, they treat it like a, it's like a Hollywood thing. They treat it almost like it's like a movie. And Oh, will the government shut down? Will it not shut down? And, you know, like before we played that clip of Dershowitz and he had that dramatic music in the background, which is so annoying. They have to do this. They have to like dramatize everything. Like everything has to become like this, like, like movie type of thing, you know, in context, right? Because they think that that, I don't know, gets more clicks or more viewers or whatever. So you have MSNBC. So that's really annoying because they're talking about real, very serious issues over here. And it shouldn't be boiled down to, oh, will the government shut down? Will the government not shut down and turn it into like, like a spy novel? And then you have MSNBC. They have in the corner of the screen, you know, they have the little boxes in the corner of the screen. They have a box. This is already on Friday. So it's eight days from the shutdown and you have a countdown timer. Countdown to a government shutdown, eight days, seven hours, 38 minutes, whatever. And it, and it's literally, they, they have this box for days and days. They, I don't know even when it started, but a box for days and days, countdown to the shutdown. And what they're trying to do is they're, they're, they're trying to like brainwash the country. Uh, look at this. We have a government shutdown looming. And of course, they're already calling it a Republican shutdown. You have KJP calling it a Republican shutdown. Everything is designed. They're so strategic. Don't think that anything here is just by chance. They're so, so strategic. Number one, government shutdown. They're acting like it's like the shut, it's like the countdown to the apocalypse. That's the, what they're acting like over here. They do it 
two weeks in advance, eight, nine days in advance, because they want everyone to be focused on it. They want everyone in the country. It's a fear mongering of the Republicans are threatening to shut down the government. Here's the countdown clock. And as though they're counting down to like a ticking time bomb, literally, that's literally what this is. So it's all designed to brainwash the country. If this happens, it's the Republicans' fault. And oh, by the way, put so much pressure on the Republicans that they're going to be terrified to do it because the whole country, the whole thing is rigged, that the whole country is 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 ready to blame and pounce on the Republicans because it's their fault, okay? And what they're really saying, a government shutdown doesn't mean government shutdown. What they're really saying is, when they say the government cannot shut down, that would be terrible. Moody's credit rating. What they're really saying is, I want you, this is very important to decipher the code here, is we need to keep spending. We need to keep borrowing. We need to keep spending. So the whole thing is designed, it's rigged to brainwash people. We need to pass spending, more and more spending. And if the Republicans don't want to spend, then what they're doing is they're destroying our our credit rating and they're putting government employees out of work and they are hurting you. Okay, that's the, 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 the disgrace here is how the media and the Democrats are all in cahoots brainwashing the country, making the evil enemy Republicans into the bad guys before anything even happened as, 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 a, as a way to pressure them into just caving in, borrowing, spending, borrowing, spending. That's what this whole system is. Think about that. Now, myth number one, it takes two sides to shut down the government. They blame the Republicans, but guess what? The Democrats could cave in. You got Republicans in the ha- controlling the House, Democrats controlling the Senate and the White House. Either way, when it was Trump controlling things it, it, and, and the Democrats controlled Congress, they always blame the Republicans, whatever side they're on. There's no, there, there is no consistency, except the consistent thing is blame the Republicans every time. So it takes two sides. The Democrats could just as easily compromise with the Republicans as vice versa. That's myth number one. Myth number two is... They want you to believe, you know, who's the government shutdown? Whose fault is it? It's the Republicans. Why? Because we were spending a certain amount last year, and now the Republicans want to cut spending. By the way, Mike Johnson, the first proposal he gave to the White House, he doesn't even want to cut spending. He just wants to keep spending at at the current levels. He doesn't want to fund Ukraine and Israel, even though he already funded Israel with a different bill. But Mike Johnson right now, he's not even – there are a lot of conservatives who say they're not going to support his current proposal. So his current proposal is already – caving in. Now, that doesn't concern me, but oh, he's already caving in. No, it's not. He wants to first propose something to the Democrats that they should accept, and then he knows they're going to turn it down, which they are turning it down. So basically, he's telling them, listen, I gave you something. I'm, I'm willing to actually abandon conservatives in my party to make a deal with the Democrats, and the Democrats are still refusing. That gives him strong negotiating leverage. So that doesn't worry me. Let's see how it all plays out. Too early to tell. But the point is, that uh, it's like, well, we spent this much last year, so we need to spend this much again. And oh, we need to raise even more because there's some kind of you know baseline increase. And that's a myth that because we spent the last year, they love you to believe that myth. You don't need just because you spent trillions last year doesn't mean we automatically need to spend trillions again. That is always their narrative is it's the Republicans fault. Why? Because we spent the last year. So now why should we not spend it this year? Oh, the Republicans want to cut it. It should be the opposite. It's the opposite. You, 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 it's like, so if you're making cuts, you're evil because you want to hurt old people and babies and you want to just, 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 uh, all these harmless victims, all these harmless victims, innocent victims around the country and low income people, the Republicans want to hurt all their programs. It should be the opposite. Start from scratch, decide are the expenses reasonable or not. I mean, it's just lunacy. So look, we're going to have to wait and see, uh, as the days go on over here, if they cut a deal or not. And is Mike Johnson, does he have the courage? to shut things down if need be. All right, so election day this past Tuesday, not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I did actually go to vote, you know, whatever local elections we had in my 
area. And number one, the, the, the volunteers. You have these seniors, of course, who are volunteers at the polling places every year. And it's very cute. I don't know. They take a lot of pride in what they do. And it's just very cute and adorable just watching these people. And, you know, they don't really it, it's not it's not exactly rocket science. They don't exactly need members of Mensa, you know, and uh, graduates of MIT to be volunteering at the polling place at the voting place where they basically check your address and you have to sign something. Oh, wow. Good verification there. I'll get to that in a moment. These places are just ripe for fraud. But uh, and then you like go to the, the one table and the next table and they give you the card and then you go to the, the third person and whatever and, uh, you know, submit your card and your vote. And then they give you the sticker and they're just so excited and so proud. And it's like you made their day. And why I went, it was quite empty. I went, I went early in the day. So maybe that's why there's early voting or whatever. But uh, they don't exactly have a lot of excitement. It's an off year. It's not it's not even. A, a congressional year. It's and it's certainly not a presidential year. So it's 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 pretty dead over there. So everybody everybody who walks in just gets the royal treatment. But it is very cute, and I like that these volunteers take all that pride in what they do. It is nice. Now, unfortunately, like I said, the whole system is just so messed up. And all you have to do is give a name and address. There's no ID, right? We know because Democrats can't send voter ID because then it makes it harder to commit fraud. And, you know, so um, it's unbelievable how you could just get anybody's name and address and you just sign it. You sign like this little tablet and they don't do a verification. So you literally could walk into the same place over and over again, or at the very least, you can walk into 40 different places, give a name and address from that location and just vote 500 times. Anybody can go and vote 20, 30, 40, 50 times. So the whole thing is just so ripe for fraud. It's unbelievable. And literally, you have thousands of operatives. I guarantee you that both sides, you know, because most people don't show up to vote, or even if they do show up, how? what are you going to do? You're going to start tracking down the cameras, everybody who signed in at every moment. It's impossible to track this stuff down. So it is unbelievable. And I'm sure both sides, I'm sure both sides commit massive fraud because, like, it's just so easy. It's just so easy. The whole system is just so messed up in terms of, you know, and that's before I get to the universal mail-in ballots. So it's just ridiculous to me that they don't have a better system in this day and age. And, and like, oh, yeah, nice, the democratic system. I'm exercising my right to vote and whatever. Sorry for being very cynical about that. But it, it, I just don't buy it. Anybody could just come in and vote any time and claim to be anybody under the sun. So it's really a very, very uh, depressing and disturbing system. And by the way, in the presidential race, because of the electoral votes, um, you literally in a country of 300 million people, the race comes down to about 100,000 voters in six different cities because of that's how the Electoral College votes uh, so works. So there's just so much opportunity there to cheat. And um, whatever, we can get into this at a later date here. If, if there was no Electoral College, if it was a popular vote, I think that actually benefit the Republicans a lot. But Election Day was a disaster for the Republicans. The Virginia legislature, they bought, they lost both houses in the Virginia legislature. They were hoping to, they had one control over one. They were hoping the Republicans to pick up a second one. They lost both. Both are now controlled by Democrats in, um, in Kentucky. I guess the Democrat governor, uh, Democrat incumbent governor was reelected. And then you had this in Ohio. In Ohio, there was, a, a you know, some kind of proposition to basically allow abortions through the ninth month. I mean, late-term abortions, a horrible, horrible, horrible um, proposition was passed in Ohio, pro-abortion. And the abortion issue, and we'll have to get into this also as time goes on, it's it's a killer for the Republicans. The, the abortion issue, it is the third rail. It is toxic for the Republicans. And they've got to just stop. they got to just stop talking about it. They have to just, every question that comes up about abortion in a debate, on campaign, or anywhere else, they just have to deflect it. Because I understand, I respect, I agree. I'm very, very pro-life. 
But what does it help you if you're basically, you know, going and proclaiming and declaring how pro-life you are and then you keep losing elections and you're out of power. So the so the pro-death people get to take charge and you keep losing elections. Like, is that really beneficial? Not at all. So it, it actually hurts your cause. So that's all that's happening over here. All right. So let's get into the debate here a little bit. Number one, Lester Holt, uh, the M- the NBC narrative. This is an NBC debate. So the NBC narrator, and, and by the way, Vivek Ramaswani, I know, I know it's Vivek or whatever, but Ramaswani called out the fact that why are we even here? He, he, he blasted the Republican Party, Rona McDaniel, and he blasted the party in general for agreeing to do a debate on, on NBC with a bunch of leftist moderators. I know you, Hewitt was there. He's a little bit more conservative, but Kristen Walker, Ramaswani said, he said, it should be Tucker Carlson moderating this debate. And he said, would you ever imagine Democrats going on Fox News and having somebody, Greg Gutfeld, basically compared Greg Gutfeld to Kristen Walker. Kristen Walker is a leftist anchor, okay? So uh, basically you have the Republicans coming in to a Democrat-controlled moderator uh, crew. It's just, it, 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 it's ridiculous. Only the Republicans would do it. The Democrats never agreed to do it in the other direction. And good point, Ramon. Ramon was the only ones who made any original points or any, I, only one, I should say. And now I understand that um, people think that Nikki Haley was the winner. Nikki Haley, she was strong. You know, a lot of stuff on foreign policy, so that's her bread and butter with the UN and all that stuff. But, and I have no problem with Nikki Haley and all these candidates to me and DeSantis, but in terms of the only fresh one, the only one who sounds a little bit different, has different, you know, doesn't just recycle the same old talking points is Ramaswani. And he's trying to be Trump. Now, by the way, people say he's annoying. He's arrogant. You know, he comes across as like being like he's like this teacher's pet type of guy who comes across as being like very ego, very egotistical. And and he kind of lectures you. And look, I understand all of that. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm that I'm voting for him for Mr. Congeniality, that he's made, made that, that he's somebody I'd want to be best friends with. But and by the way, he concerns me because I don't know that he's a big supporter of Israel. So I'm not even saying that I agree with everything, you know, that his policies are not even maybe dangerous in a certain sense for Israel. But in terms of his outlook on most domestic issues, I mean, Ramaswani and the only one who's willing to actually criticize the media and tell it like it is and be straight. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. He's like, you know, he tries to be a mini Trump. And in some way, like he doesn't even hold a candle, in my opinion. He's much younger. But, uh, you know, I'm not trying to knock Ramaswani. But he's the only one. And, and, and in a way, I guess I'm praising him. But it's very interesting how you know, he's the only one who's like a little bit out of the box. That's why I'm going to quote him here more than anybody else, because it, it was just boring. It was very boring and predictable debate. But Lester Holt, can you please stop shushing the crowd? L- literally, Lester Holt, he was like, and and the and the moderators they always think it's about them. So it's like you're not the story. You're the wallpaper, and you bring in a crowd of passionate Republican voters, and they get riled up. They they kept cheering, and 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 the moderators officially NBC's policy was no cheering from the crowd, and they kept cheering. Of course, what do you expect them to do? They're at a, basically a campaign event here, and they they support and like these candidates, and they get riled up and get excited. And you're begging them to be quiet. He kind of sounded like a kindergarten teacher to me. So that was very. Frustrating, And you know that the moderators did not ask a single question about the, the the southern border, about the border crisis with Mexico until 90 minutes into the debate. And that was asked by Hugh Hewitt, who's the more conservative moderator. And, and that question was more about fentanyl than it was actually about the border crisis. All right. It, it's really late. I wanted to get into other things here. But um, look, Ramaswani, you know, he said he talked about the election day because this debate was one day after the election day. And he said he basically said we're a party of losers. That's literally what he said. And he said, since Rona McDaniel took over as chairwoman in 2017, we lost 2018, 2020, 2021, and 2022. 
the red wave never came. And then, I, I, well, at least he said 2018, 2020. I think he said 2021 also. And uh, he said, where's the accountability? He's 100% right. Rona McDaniel has got to go. Okay, she just keeps losing and losing and losing. You've got to blame the chairman or the chairwoman of the RNC. There's no one, there's no one else to blame. And she's you know, the person who gets blamed number one, right? And, uh, all right, so he's talking about how the, you know, the defense contractors and how these candidates are all in the tank and they want to fund Ukraine and send billions to Ukraine because, I mean, he literally called that Nikki Haley for being on the board of directors of Boeing, which was a good point. And, you know, whatever he, you know, he was very, very strong about how, you know, his America first beliefs and look, in a lot of ways, he's right. I'm not saying he's right about everything, but he's, he's a lot of way, you know, he's definitely right about a lot of his, uh, you know, his positions and his policies. And, you know, there, there was an interesting little question about, uh, whether we should censor anti-Semitism on campus. Ramaswani's worried that if you censor that, if you start the censorship route, then a lot of conservatives are going to get canceled, they're going to get censored. So that's an interesting freedom of speech debate. Now, the argument is they're doing dangerous things. So it's, you know, it's the old yelling crowded, yelling fire in a crowded theater. And um, interesting point he made about Ukraine. He said, here are facts that you won't hear from the mainstream in either party or the mainstream media. The regions of Ukraine occupied by Russia, the Donbass, Lozank, Luhansk, Donetsk, Russian-speaking, they are Russian-speaking regions that have not been part of Ukraine since 2014. Other people probably could not name those provinces for you. Those are the hard facts. So to frame this as some kind of battle between good versus evil, don't buy it. And I'd like the likes of uh, the sharpest of war hawks on Ukraine, Nikki Haley, to have some accountability and answer, do you want to use taxpayer money to fund the banning of Christians because now they're banning Christians in Ukraine? He, call, he actually called Zelensky a Nazi, and he said, this is not, Ukraine is not a paragon of democracy. It's a country that banned 11 opposition parties, consolidated all the media into one state media arm. That's not democratic. It has threatened to not hold elections until the United States forks over more money. That's not democratic. Not not democratic. So, uh, you know, he basically is pointing out the bitter truth about Ukraine, which he's right about, which is that the Ukrainian government is extremely corrupt. They are not democratic in any way. Zelensky essentially is positioning himself as a dictator and asking us to be his number one supporter and give him billions more after already giving him over $100 billion. All right, that's going to do it for today. Busy, busy day here, and we will see you next time.